Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hello and welcome again to the Fertility and Sterility on Air podcast. We're joined by our full discussants today. I have Kurt, our editor-in-chief. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning. Great to be here. Eve, welcome. It's great to see you. Good morning. Great to see everyone. And we have our intrepid interactive associate-in-chief, Pietro Bortoletto. Welcome, Pietro. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. We're recording this in the week leading up to ASRM, so by the time we uh, listen to this, we will all have seen each other. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in Baltimore for ASRM 2021. For those keeping track at home, this is the November 2021 On Air Podcast, Volume 116, Number 5. And Pietro, we're jumping right in with you in the views and reviews, which was put together by our very own Eve Feinberg this month. What are we talking about, Pietro, in the views and reviews? Thanks, Micah. So like you mentioned, our very own Dr. E. Feinberg has a excellent views and reviews in this month's edition that centers around the topic of mosaic embryos, particularly on the accuracy of the diagnosis and the validity of guidelines recommending genetic counseling prior to mosaic embryo transfer. It's a trio of three articles, and the first is entitled The Mosaic Embryo, Misconceptions and Misinterpretations in PGTA. This is a great article. It's authored by Nathan Treff and Diego Marin, where they discuss the methodologic challenges of PGTA and how the diagnosis of, quote-unquote, you can't see me doing the air quotes, mosaic embryos, has led to significant reduction in the accuracy of PGTA as well as an increase in the anxiety regarding result interpretation. The authors question whether mosaic is truly a diagnosis or an error of interpretation. And the authors explain how the copy number threshold is not a direct measure of mosaicism and that it is inaccurate to assume that an embryo is mosaic using an intermediate copy number strategy. As Dr. Feinberg eloquently points out in her introductory um, introduction to this article, the authors here argue that the difference in clinical outcomes can best be explained by considering, again, quote-unquote, mosaic embryos, as false positive calls due to the inability of copy number analysis to distinguish signal from noise. The second piece in this tree of articles is one by Manuel Viotti entitled Review the recently published work reporting the outcomes of over a thousand mosaic embryo transfers. And from this data, the authors, as we all know now, devised a ranking system to help counsel patients on prognosis based on both the level and type of mosaicism. The goal here, of course, being how to prioritize embryos with the highest chance of live birth and decrease the time to pregnancy when using mosaic embryos. The listeners to this podcast are very familiar with this by now, but we now know that low-level mosaics are superior to high-level mosaics, and mosaics of a single chromosome are more favorable than complex mosaics. In contrast to the authors of the first article, the VOD article makes an excellent case for including mosaics as a third category, in addition to euploid and aneuploid calls. 
is they believe it's actually helpful for patients and it sets realistic expectations of poor prognosis embryos and will prevent discarding of embryos that may actually lead to live birth. The final article in this trio is entitled Evidence-Based Management of Pre-Implantation Chromosomal Mosaicism, Lessons from the Clinic. And this is a great article from the group at NYU. This article discusses the varied society recommendations regarding genetic counseling and testing for mosaic embryo transfers and raises some really thoughtful questions about the data behind these recommendations. The authors discuss how the evolving data on mosaic embryo transfers is mostly impacted early implantation with only a single report of ongoing fetal mosaicism. They note that there have not been reports of adverse effects of mosaic embryos outside of implantation, and in fact, most cases of confirmed fetal mosaicism arise from transfers of embryos that were diagnosed as euploid originally. So considering this data, the authors actually end up challenging the uniform recommendation for prenatal diagnostic testing after mosaic embryo transfer, but not after euploid embryo transfer. And if you haven't read this views and reviews yet, I encourage everyone to read it because it just has such a thoughtful discussion about what mosaic embryos mean, should we be calling them that, and what they mean for patients. And Eve, since we have you on here, I want to ask you a question. I personally think that until we're at the point where the technology and our understanding catches up, we should be reporting what we see and leaning on our labs, our genetic counselors, and physicians to help interpret these results with all the aforementioned caveats. But I say that as a physician who has never had to discuss transferring a mosaic embryo to myself. So in your experience counseling patients who do have these quote-unquote mosaic embryos that they're considering transferring, what do you think they want from us and what kind of research do we need to help inform the patient experience here? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I will say that putting this views and reviews together really challenged the way that I was thinking and I think helped me to think about mosaic embryos a little bit differently than I had previously. When you really dive in and you look at the data, not just have it roll over you, Kurt, but when you really dive in and you look at the data, it becomes apparent that there are live births from mosaic embryos, and I think we can no longer ignore that. I, I have shifted to counseling patients that there are three categories of results that we will see when we do PGTA. You'll see those that are categorized as euploid, those that are categorized as aneuploid, and those that are categorized as mosaic, which is really uncertain read on chromosome copy number. And I think that explaining that something is categorized as euploid and not definitively stating it as euploid helps patients to understand when a euploid embryo does not implant that it's perhaps similar to mosaicism, it's perhaps an error of interpretation. And so I think patients want more transparency. They want to be part of the decision-making process. They want to understand the limits of technology, and obviously they want a healthy baby. But I think that the point is very well taken about how when we call something euploid, we are not requiring genetic counseling, yet when we call something mosaic, the society recommendations are for genetic counseling. And it really makes me question whether or not we should be counseling every patient about the uncertainty of the read from all types of PGTA. Kurt, Micah, what do you think? I think this is getting 
really complicated. And I had somebody tell me at a cocktail party the other day that just had a baby. They said, do you want me to put on fetal testing for your baby? And they said, why are you asking me that? How would I know? I'm the patient. So are we giving patients way too much information when really all they want to know is, is this a safe embryo to put back? Are they going to understand this? I don't know. I was in a consult yesterday of a biochemical pregnancy after a, quote, euploid embryo transfer. Um, but that euploid embryo transfer was done on a SNP platform and had lower significance call for chromosome 22. And in the discussion with the patient, we started to get into the weeds about what does the chromosome call number mean? And she said to me, she was a little bit upset, and she said, well, I wish we had that conversation when deciding which embryo to transfer. (laughs) And it, it made me pause. And I thought, well, we have an algorithm that we follow in our clinic. Do we really want to involve patients who don't really understand a lot of the nuances in that decision-making. And I I think it's a very fine balance between patient autonomy and physician wisdom. Great. Thank you, Eve. This is a fantastic views and reviews. And like Pietro said, I recommend everyone read that. Uh, So, Kurt, we're moving on to you now with the seminal contribution for the month of November, talking about machine learning and when should we do a trigger. Thanks. I was really pleased to identify this as a seminal contribution. It really is a fascinating article. Maybe not going to affect my everyday care just yet, but it will give us a lot to talk about. The paper is titled, A Machine Learning Algorithm Can Optimize the Day of Trigger to Improve In Vitro Fertilization Outcomes. By the way, a wonderfully declarative title. I really like that kind of title as opposed to posing a question. The first author is Eduardo Harriton with senior author Mitch Rosen from the University of California, San Francisco in the Department of Artificial Intelligence at Stanford University. Wonderful collaboration. So we have to start at the very beginning. E. Pietro Micah, what the heck is artificial intelligence? I don't know, Kurt, you're the epidemiologist. You tell us. (laughs) Well, if you ask the statisticians, they're just telling you it's nothing but regression analysis by another name, right? I I always think back to, um, I don't know, I shouldn't say this joke in front of Micah, you know, that the the, the greatest oxymoron is military intelligence. So I really can't tell you whether, you know, what really artificial intelligence is. So I looked it up, and according to Google, machine learning – is the use and development of computer systems that are able to learn and adapt without following explicit instructions by using algorithms and statistical methods to analyze and draw inferences from patterns in data. I think that might work for choosing when to trigger or not to trigger. Actually, this is a mouthful, but, you know, it really could help us with this complex decision, which we agonize over about whether we're supposed to trigger or not. So, Artificial intelligence and machine learning is everywhere around us. We've learned from um, Watson that it can beat our best chess masters. And I don't know if you remember, we learned from uh, Google that it can actually predict when there's a flu epidemic before we actually all the testing. That was about five or 10 years ago. And there's this great concept in statistics called N equals all. If you have all of the data, isn't your prediction better than just a sampling of it? So this paper has all of the data from UCSF for a decade. So clearly, it must be 100% right. So let me talk to you a little bit about it. 
So the study set out to determine whether machine learning using something called causal inference modeling can optimize trigger injection or timing to maximize the yield of oocytes, fertilized oocytes or 2PNs, and usable blastocysts. Some of the advantages of this study were that it evaluated the IVF cycles from a single center, and they looked at a mere 7,800 cycles conducted over 11 years. The question that was asked in this research study, it was framed as whether the patient should be triggered or whether they should wait another day. And the decision was based on all the patient characteristics that you could gather on that simulation parameter on that given day. So let me cut right to the results and then I'll get back to the methods for a second. So the physician and the artificial intelligence model agreed, depending on the model, somewhere between 53 and 61% of the time. And in summary, if you use the artificial intelligence model, that resulted in an average of 1.43 more 2PNs, and then that was calculated to approximately 0.5 blastocysts per stimulation that could be garnered by changing the decision of the physician to that of artificial intelligence. One of the main results is what mattered most in the decision model was the number of follicles between 16 and 20. The second most important feature was the follicles between 15 and 11. And then finally, the estradiol and those three characteristics in those order. So that's the punchline. Computers can do better than board-certified reproductive endocrinologists. So the question then becomes, are we sure that assumption is correct? Are we all out of a job? So let's look at this a little bit more. As I mentioned, the question was asked, to the computer, trigger or not to trigger? Should have said that differently. To trigger or not to trigger? That is the question. Um, so the, the, the answer was based on 75% of the data, and that's called a training set, and that created the algorithm. The other 25% of the data was set in reserve and used as the test set. This is a very common form of validation. It's arguably okay, but I would mention, and I'll mention later, that of course this doesn't replicate the need to get a new population to do this in another population. So for those of you following at home, the primary algorithm was a T-learner with backslide gradient boosting machine-based learning. We all know that affectionately is LGBM. So this was chosen because it was reportedly superior to other algorithms that work with matrices that mix categorical and continuous covariates in nonlinear relationships. Wow, it's really good to know that my decision to trigger or not is so complex. So what happened was the model predicted the number of fertilized eggs and then mathematically converted that to usable blastocysts. The primary outcome wasn't just the number of eggs. Primary outcome was the average of the outcome compared to the physicians. This was performed by looking to see whether predicted treatment would result in a benefit or in a harm, and then calculating the average amongst that, i.e., would, would the trigger or non-trigger resulted in more or fewer eggs. So this was done a thousand times in the simulation so you could get 95% confidence intervals. But this is still only the first part of the study. Then you have to take the prediction and you have to compare it to the physicians. Then we can estimate whether you got more embryos or less embryos and whether the computer was better than physicians. For example, the model created an algorithm, and we looked at the MD's decision first. So the MD decided to wait and not trigger in 734 cases, where the model recommended waiting in only about 500 of them and triggering in around 250. Conversely, it was looked at when the physician decided to trigger on a, roughly another 760, and in this case, the model recommended waiting in 341 of those cases. 
You then looked at the projected number of eggs that would have been a benefit, meaning more eggs or less eggs based on this discrepancy, and that's where you get the extra 1.4 tupronuclear fertilized eggs and an extra half a blastocyst. So it was not directly reported or compared in the paper whether the error of the physician was greater in one direction or the other. It just said basically that the computer could do better and get more, more eggs. It actually looks like there wasn't a bias where physicians were waiting too long or triggered too early, but instead the mistakes were just made. In other words, it just says that humans were inconsistent. So the authors also performed something called a feature analysis. This analysis basically looked to see which variables greatly impacted the decision. Interestingly, as I mentioned, the top three variables might have been intuitive to us. The number of follicles between 16 and 20 that we would call mature, the number of intermediate follicles between 11 and 15, and the estradiol levels. Uh, by the way, they put in a safety valve in the study that if the level was above 6,000, they wouldn't trigger. That didn't matter, as well as many other things like BMI, dose, age, antral follicles. But those things had very little decision on the decision whether to trigger or not. So fascinating stuff. It really is. So I hope you also look at this wonderful reflection by Tom Molinaro and Leah Roberts entitled The Ghost in the Machine. They point out very eloquently that although we have a wonderful machine in our brain that can generate complex associations from small amounts of data, we often base our decisions on past experience or our education. Computers, on the other hand, seem to do a little bit better with some of these tasks, as I mentioned, including some of our best trust masters. But artificial intelligence doesn't always work. You know, there was an artificial intelligence that was created to distinguish between wolves and huskies. You know, wolves and huskies are pretty similar, and the, the artificial intelligence was able to do it practically 100% of the time. You know what they are actually predicting? If the picture had snow in the ground, it was a wolf. So it had no bearing on what we thought it was doing. It was finding something else. And this is not the first time. There's also a study between skin cancer and benign lesions. And every time there was a ruler involved, it was a skin cancer. So sometimes artificial intelligence predicts things that we don't know about or not expecting. So I really do like the application of machine learning to this problem in IVF. I sit in our decision room for much too long, and Simone can, can vouch for that, about agonizing whether to trigger or not to trigger, the benefits of pushing for another day, lamenting whether I'm going to get more eggs when they're going to be post-mature. And I have to admit, I often don't know if I made the right decision until somebody looks at the second cycle and then looks back to say whether, oh, nope, look, see, there were too many immature eggs. You should, you should have pushed them another day. Or, nope, they, you know, they were atretic eggs. That hack Barnhart waited too long. But we really don't know whether the decision act was correct or not. So at the very least, this machine learning might allow me to sleep better at night. I also remember a really good Best of ESHRA and ASRM session a number of years ago where it was a debate between um, an embryologist from Europe and a, an REI from America saying, who's more important, the physician or the embryologist? And poor Glenn Chapman, who was the physician from REI, looked like a deer in headlight and came up with the best answer I've ever seen where he said, as a clinician, all I can do is screw up the IVF cycle. All I can do is give the embryologist bad eggs. So clearly, my job is to just get out of the way. Well, maybe with this artificial intelligence, Glenn might sleep better at night. Well, of course, I need to give you the commercial message, but this is not ready to implement just yet. I don't know how to do it on my computer, even if I could. We're not going to be able to implement it just yet. Clearly, there will be lots of future research to determine what are the most important variables, how to implement this in a clinic in a better way.
And again, it's, it's not clear if this model will work in all clinics, or maybe there's some unique intuitive skills based on those clinicians at UCSF that made the right decision or the wrong decision. So to quote Tom Mullen, our own reflections, of course, more prospective studies demonstrating the utility of such algorithms must be performed before we truly know whether machine learning is superior to our own human judgment. However, I'm pleased to say that when I retire, I can assume that my job will not be replaced by some whippersnapper fellow that I trained, but instead I'll probably be replaced by a computer. What do you guys think of this idea? I think there's so much to unpack here. And I actually think that maybe the goal shouldn't be superior, but what if it's not inferior and you could have a machine that would day after day as you're doing IVF decisions, either automate those decisions so that we're not spending hours per day doing decisions or having pop-ups in the EMR stating, are you sure? Today, the EMR suggests today that you trigger um, with little pop-ups helping to guide us as to how to do decisions. And I think maybe a combination of a little bit of machine learning with the human brain may be ultimately the right answer. And there are some programs that will pop up um, for antagonist start. And I think that that's probably the beginning of using machine algorithms in terms of IVF decisions. But I am very excited to see what the future brings in this arena. And superior would be phenomenal, but non-inferior would certainly lessen our workload. I think that's a great point, Eve, because we know this is being evaluated for commercialization by companies out there, and this will be offered in software packages coming up. And so uh, if it's going to be non-inferior, then it has to do something from a cost-effectiveness standpoint or workflow standpoint. Otherwise, we're just uh, charging patients for another add-on, as some people might call it. Uh, Kurt, I was just curious from a method standpoint. I love that they had their training set and their validation set Do we actually need an RCT once you've gone through those two steps, randomize patients to the software and to conventional to actually know? Because uh, I can make a model that will predict my training set pretty well, and hopefully it works in the validation set. But until I do that final step, have we really shown that we can improve outcomes? I think you do need an external validation. In fact, I feel pretty strongly that you do. When you cut a sample in half, you're basically applying the same data on basically the same sample. So whenever inherent bias was there is still there. That's what I meant about the clinicians. They were making a decision a certain way, perhaps their patients, perhaps their training, perhaps their collegiality, and maybe at 10, we're doing it differently. So the same variables might not predict the trigger at 10 that it did at UCSF. And it's well known in this field that we take for granted in most of these papers that first time you do a model, you get really good results because the computer is very good at finding an answer. When you validate it, you know, well, it looks pretty good. It still looked pretty good. I Maybe my answer is true. And then you put it to an outside sample, and lo and behold, it just didn't hold up as well. So I firmly believe standardization with computers will help some of our decision making, but I don't want to go too far just yet. By the way, it doesn't take away the elegance and the spectacular nature of this paper. I'm just just not ready to jump in with both feet yet. One of the cool applications, I think, for this, this was done in kind of all comers at UCSF over the decade. I think some of the most agonizing trigger decisions are the patients who have a history of IVF cycles in the past that you can go back and look at. 
in patients who are just more brittle, the diminished ovarian reserves, the patients who are starting to have an LH rise, the patients with very few follicles, those are the ones where I really think an artificial intelligence adjunct could help minimize the stress that the fellows have to go through when sitting at, with you, Dr. Barnhart, and trying to make trigger decisions. Those are, those are the helpful things where it says, based on our experience over these last thousand cycles over the last decade, this is where I think the patient stands to benefit the most. And I think that's what I'm most excited about is really drilling down on who are the patients that could benefit the most from this. And we may actually see a slightly stronger signal in those patients rather than the general population where you have some wiggle room with the trigger. Yeah, I'm also worried about making this too general. There's another anecdote I'll tell you that remember, I don't know if you know this, there was a, an app that Boston used that to um, when you were driving, could pick up potholes. You know, you just put it on and you could tell by the jiggling of your car if you ran over a pothole or not. So therefore, they knew where to fix the streets. And again, they had everybody use the app, and they realized in this N equals all phenomenon, they were biased. They only found potholes in roads that were driven by people that had iPhones, not in all roads. So it's one of these things where you have to be careful who you're sampling. And although I think UCSF is a great program, they're not the same as my program, and they're not the same as your program. Fascinating paper, great discussion. Eve, we have you next with the ASRM pages, and there's a pretty robust slate of practice committee articles this month. Tell us about them. All right. So there are several practice committee documents in this month's episode. The first is titled ASRM Mullerian Anomalies Classification 2021, and that is shortened to MAC 2021. In this issue of Fertility and Sterility, the Malarian Anomaly Task Force of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine introduces us to a long-awaited new classification system. The task force consisted of REIs who are members of ASRM and SRS, as well as members of NASPAG, radiologists, and ASRM staff with expertise in education and curriculum design. For our learners, the Malarian system continues to develop to completion, if not halted, by Malarian inhibiting substance, also known as AMH. In contrast, the Wolfian system will only develop to a certain point and will continue after that only if testosterone is present. The Malarian system develops first as two uterine buds that come together in the midline, fuse, and then canalize and defects that occur are largely fusion failures or canalization failures or both. This new Malarian anomaly classification system is based on known defects and uses as its foundation nine descriptive terms, malarianogenesis, cervical agenesis, unicornuate uterus, bicornuate uterus, septate uterus, longitudinal vaginal septum, transverse vaginal system, and complex anomalies. This new system describes common variants and leaves room for adding variants as they are newly identified. What is so interesting about this is that it was developed as a computer-based interactive tool with both expandable fields as well as imaging subpages. So the document in this month's journal describes the interactive tool that's present on the ASRM website. And I would encourage each and every one of our listeners to go to the ASRM website and play around with the tool. You see primary anomalies, and then each anomaly has five major educational elements, branching to 80 plus images, 
as well as images of MRI, ultrasound, and HSG. This tool includes 81 screens of interface items with visual elements and hover features and colors for high fidelity. All I can say is it's an amazing tool. I think it's great for our learners. It's great for those who are already in practice. And kudos to the Assemble Task Force in undertaking a key project and getting it done. The next committee opinion is Fertility Evaluation of the Infertile Woman. This document replaces the 2015 document of the same name. It outlines the definition of infertility, when to do an evaluation, and each component of the evaluation, including ovulatory function, the role of ovarian reserve screening, cervical factors, uterine anomalies, evaluation of tubal patency, and peritoneal factors. And basically what I wanna do is highlight the notable updates from the prior document. First, the indication for evaluation was expanded to include sexual dysfunction and genetic or acquired conditions that predispose to DOR like chemotherapy, FMR1 mutations, or prior history of radiation. Additionally, women who require donor sperm are recommended to undergo evaluation prior to proceeding with IUI. It was also recommended that if a male partner is involved, that male and female evaluation occur concurrently. In the evaluation for ovulatory function, it was recommended that eumenorrheic women with hirsutism have regular ovulation in only 60% of cycles. And in these women, a luteal progesterone level is recommended to confirm ovulation. It was highlighted that a single progesterone value can be used to confirm ovulation, but again, not to assess the quality of the luteal phase. The use of transvaginal ultrasound with concurrent evaluation for corpus luteum and antral follicle count is also an acceptable method for assessing ovulatory status. In the section on hormone testing, the document outlines that routine measurement of prolactin levels are not recommended, but are indicated in the setting of galactorrhea, oligomenorrhea, or amenorrhea. The document defines ovarian reserve as reproductive potential as a function of the number of oocytes, and I like that definition. The 2015 document states the contemporary use of the clomiphene citrate challenge has declined. This most recent document states it is not recommended. I am sincerely hoping that may change the insurance mandate for this test and the use of this to exclude patients from treatment with insurance plans like the Massachusetts Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. The document really stresses that ovarian reserve testing does not have proven benefit in infertile women or as a random biomarker of ovarian function. And another pertinent update is the postcoital test is no longer recommended for the evaluation of the infertile patient. And <laughs> it's about time that they made that recommendation. This document does affirm the use of HSG or saline sonogram for evaluation of tubal patency, the recommendation for tubal canalization with hysteroscopy or HSG was removed from this document. And finally, the recommendation that laparoscopy is not recommended for the routine evaluation of an infertile woman without pelvic pathology is upheld. Overall, it's an excellent document and was developed both for the reproductive endocrinologist as well as any physician or provider who evaluates infertile women.
That was a great summary. Is uh, This document also talks about uh, removing progesterone testing to confirm ovulation if a woman has regular uh, cycles with malignant symptoms. So, uh, in other words, if you know by history that a patient is either ovulatory or anovulatory, then you don't need to do a progesterone test to confirm or that one way or the other. Except in the woman who has hirsutism. So that's correct. absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of very subtle updates. And actually what I did when I read it was I have the 2015 document side by side and I went through paragraph by paragraph to figure out what were the nuances, what were the new recommendations and what was removed. And so that's just a high level summary of all the differences that exist. But go back and read the document. I think it's a foundational learning tool for how to evaluate the infertile woman. The next article I'm going to review is I'm also just going to give a very high-level discussion. This is Obesity and Reproduction, a Committee Opinion. And again, it's another excellent document that I really encourage our listeners to read. It outlines the adverse effects of obesity on human reproduction. It also provides an assessment of the therapeutic benefits of lifestyle modification and medical management, as well as bariatric surgery. Finally, the article has a thoughtful discussion on the issues of safety and BMI treatment thresholds, and I think adequately addresses this controversy. The article starts by discussing some of the flaws inherent in the utilization of BMI as a marker for obesity. BMI cutoffs are easily accessible as a clinical screening tool, but they do not account for individual differences in frame size and lean body mass. The article discusses the effect of obesity on ovarian responsiveness, egg quality, endometrial function, and miscarriage. More on miscarriage with another article I'll be discussing later in the podcast. They also discuss the effect of obesity on male reproduction. There's a really nice review in here of lifestyle interventions and medical treatment of obesity. I'm always saddened by how discouraging these results are. Obesity is just not as modifiable as one can imagine. There's an excellent discussion on the different types of bariatric surgery and outcomes with a sharp contrast in weight reduction. Lifestyle interventions and medications might lead to a reduction in weight of 5 to 11%, but bariatric surgery leads to a 70% reduction in excess weight, with 50% of that being maintained long-term. So really night and day. There was an excellent review of the available data looking at lifestyle interventions, bariatric surgery, weight loss, and live birth rate. And I think it's extremely important to understand these data showed that weight loss may improve the chances of unassisted conception, but there were no strong data that showed that weight loss improved live birth rate in infertility patients undergoing treatment. And I think this really cannot be overstated, as we need to tailor our discussions with patients on weight loss accordingly. We need to really understand that weight loss is extremely difficult, and the live birth rate outcomes are not spectacular. And I think it's really disappointing that we don't have a truly modifiable risk factor to help patients achieve a higher live birth rate with regard to assisted reproduction. There was an extremely thoughtful and balanced discussion on BMI cutoffs that concludes by saying, on the basis of available evidence, there's no medical or ethical directive for adopting a society-wide BMI threshold. 
And I want to stress society-wide because there are significant safety concerns that must be acknowledged with increasing BMI, particularly in the case of individual programs. Individual programs, as opposed to society-wide, may need to adapt specific BMI thresholds that should be used based on the safety and ability to perform egg retrieval and other procedures within their clinical environment. So I think every program really has to look at resources, look at anesthesia, look at safety, and come to consensus within an individual program on what makes the most sense that can't be um, recommended on a society level. Luckily, we have some data to support that. There's a wonderful article from my co-fellow, Philip Romanski, published while he was at the Brigham reviewing their institutional experience with um, retrieval in high BMI patients. And the data shows that it can actually be performed very, very safely with an exceedingly low risk of complication, low risk of converting to an advanced airway. Um, and really, the only thing that these patients required was a little bit more time under anesthesia and a little bit more medications. Uh, but it'd be great to see more people publish this data in an outpatient setting, not in an inpatient um, egg retrieval facility like the Brigham and Weill Cornell. Yeah, what really struck me about that paper, though, was the percent of abdominal retrievals they did in markedly obese patients. And maybe you can speak to that, but to me, that seems really counterintuitive that if you have somebody who's really obese, that you would do an abdominal retrieval. I don't think that's the norm for most centers. I think the benefit of having a highly experienced radiologist guide you for an abdominal retrieval procedure at the Brigham is probably what drove those numbers up and made it a little bit more uh, likely to occur at the Brigham. But I think if you can access the ovaries transvaginally, easier and faster, and I think likely safer for patients for sure. Great. Thank you, Eve. As always, some very nice articles from the ASRM Practice Committee. Pietro, we are now moving on to our original research articles, and we're going to start in the andrology section where you have a paper on DNA fragmentation. This is another good automation one, guys. This one's on sperm DNA fragmentation. As we all know, this is an increasingly hot topic in the ART world and andrology, and our listeners are familiar with high levels of sperm DNA fragmentation being shown to have negative impacts on fertilization, blast formation rates, and a host of pregnancy outcomes. And while the relationship between motility, morphology, and DNA fragmentation has been shown at a population level, the authors of this upcoming article point out that the same relationship has not been shown at a single sperm level. And this is important because in the ART population undergoing ICSI, embryologists are having to select individual sperm for injection, and the ability to select against sperm with high DNA fragmentation may improve cycle outcomes. So that's exactly what they did. In this month's FNS, Zhang et al. sought to establish and evaluate a set of quantitative criteria for selecting single sperm with high DNA integrity by first testing and confirming that long-to-sum hypothesis that at the single cell level, the sperm with normal motility and normal morphology has low levels of DNA fragmentation, but then they took it a step further and they sought to develop and test this criteria using a computer vision algorithm that would allow them to measure the motility and morphology of live sperm at the time of selection in clinical ICSI. So using the Comet assay, which allows for the extent of DNA fragmentation to be quantified, they confirmed that long-held assumption that qualitative selection of 
the most modal and most normal appearing sperm was associated with about a 46% lower DNA fragmentation than that of the rest of the patient's sperm sample, which is interesting but confirms a long-held belief, but now at a single sperm level. But I think the innovation here is that they then developed a quantitative criteria for sperm selection using this computer vision system and applied this criteria using a sperm selection software program at the time of ICSI. And what they found was that the software was able to identify normal motility and normal morphology sperm and that the sperm had significantly reduced DNA fragmentation than a non-selected sperm. And compared to the traditional embryologist selection of this looks normal, this looks modal, the software program was able to reduce to further select sperm with even lower fragmentation, about a 28% reduction in DNA fragmentation compared to the embryologist selection, which I think is pretty cool. And this is timely because we've talked about automation earlier in this podcast. And Micah, we recently held an FNS Journal Club on the topic of automation. Um, I'm really excited to see more data like this come out. Micah, what do you think are the pitfalls to this kind of translational research? Is it an issue about scalability? How do we commercialize this? How do we make sure that this is valid? Because this was a small pilot study. This was five patients, specimens, and three embryologists. It's a great question, Pedro, but I, with this article in particular, I would walk it back even a step further. Uh, as you said, it's a small study. The difference in DNA fragmentation with, you know, you gave the percentages and they put it into odds ratio, but the embryologists were somewhere between 1% and 4% on DNA fragmentation from the specific sperm that they selected. So, yeah, we can say, a, you know, 50% better, but is it clinically meaningful, 1% versus 4%? Does that actually change patient outcomes? And I would say maybe not. Even if it did uh, detect a significant clinical number, can you change it? Is there an intervention that can change that outcome if that is what the sperm DNA fragmentation is? So uh, if we're thinking about this in a baseball analogy, I think we're not even to first base yet, much less a home run as far as clinically implementing uh, this kind of uh, AI into clinical practice. The key here is to follow up on these and to and the second study isn't often as sexy, but you really do need a second follow-up study and a validation study. Otherwise, you know, these are all one-hit wonders. Great point, Kurt. I think we've seen this story play out in some areas with like PGS with fish, with the endometrial scratch, and maybe we're in the process of seeing that with the ERA. But I think more research is needed, as is often the case. So now we're going to move on to the assisted reproduction section of the journal, and this is an article on recurrent implantation failure, which we all know is a vexing problem for us as clinicians and for our patients. And this is addressed in an article this month by Ada Califat and Somigliana from Turkey and Italy. The paper's titled, A New Definition of Recurrent Implantation Failure on the Basis of Anticipated Aneuploidy Rates Across Female Age. So this is really a mathematical modeling paper and is based on simple but interesting assumptions. The underlying assumption of their model is that implantation failure is most likely due to aneuploidy, which on average I think is likely to be a very safe and accurate assumption. Therefore, the hypothesis being tested in a patient with recurrent implantation failure is that what is the chance it's due to non-aneuploidy? In other words, other factors that we need to investigate. So they argue that the null hypothesis needs to be rejected is that the embryo failed to implant because it was aneuploid. 
So they propose that the threshold for defining recurrent implantation failure is what is the total number of untested embryos that are transferred into a woman to have a 95% chance of implantation. So there are two significant variables in such a model. The first is what is the aneuploidy rate per age? And we know that this varies somewhat in the literature. It also varies between the reference lab that's being used and the embryology lab. And so the authors provide a range for this assumption. The second is that the implantation rate of euploid embryos also varies somewhat in the literature and between labs. So now on to the results. Remember, these are modeled based on these assumptions. In women under the age of 35, in this model, you would have to undergo seven failed embryo transfers of untested embryos before you would have a 95% chance of not having an embryo implant. In women over 38, you would have to have 10 failed embryo transfers to meet the definition of recurrent implantation failure. In women over 42, there was no medically realistic number that could be predicted to define recurrent implantation failure. So the authors conclude that RIF should be defined based on patient age and anticipated euploidy rate, which makes a lot of sense and perhaps fits with the paper we talked about earlier this year from RMA of New Jersey showing that euploid embryo transfers over three successive cycles should approach a 95% sustained implantation rate. I highly recommend everyone read this paper. The discussion itself is very insightful. Notably, the authors put in the supplemental materials a downloadable Excel file that you can use. You can put in your own lab's euploidy rate based upon patient age, your own lab's implantation rate for euploid embryo transfers, and predict how many cycles a patient would have to undergo to have a 95% chance of not having implantation. The commentary is from Poyovac, Tay, and Rosen from Australia. They commend the authors for an elegant and simple model, but one that makes a lot of sense. However, they suggest that we consider embryo grading into our models as we diagnose RIF, which I could uh, understand why they make that argument. But mainly from a conceptual standpoint, they differ from the authors on this important factor. The authors use the 95% confidence interval to make the diagnosis. They suggest that we should make the diagnosis when there's an 80% chance of having failed implantation. And I think this is a very interesting argument from a clinical versus statistical standpoint. So Kurt, my question for you was when you approach a question like this, we don't even have a good definition for recurrent implantation failure. Does it make sense to apply a statistical construct like a 95% confidence interval, or should we try to develop a more clinical perspective in, in how we approach that definition? It really depends on, on what you want to do out of this, of course, but um, I like the clinical aspect because a 95% confidence interval, as you mentioned, a statistical measure depends on how much data you have, and, and that can vary based on lots of factors that you're not really paying attention to, whereas a clinical recommendation is a good one. Um, and, you know, you can explain that very easily to a patient. Michael, what was the age where the number of euploid embryos matched that of untested embryos? Meaning that if you say that for a euploid embryo, it's four to achieve um, a 95% chance of implantation or an 80% chance of implantation, what age would you see in that calculator where you would be at that same threshold? Is it 35? Is it 38? I think the answer to your question, which is a great one, is 35, but I played around with the calculator, but I didn't do it to answer that exact question. But I think based upon what they said, somewhere around the age of 35. 
Do you guys think that we need a definition for RIF? So we have it. We're talking about this in a pre-Congress course at ASRM with Fernaziak, uh, Steve Young, Zev Williams. Uh, we also have a views and reviews in December coming up on this. But if we don't even have a definition, how do we really study how big this problem is? And how do we compare literature to assess interventions if we don't have a definition for it? We absolutely need a definition and one that's consistent and uniform because I think that that can then guide interventions. When is intervention warranted? When is intervention not warranted? At what point do you say, okay, just this is due to chance alone. Let's do another transfer and not dive in too deep on diagnostic testing. But I think without a consistent definition, that's where there are a lot of differing opinions, and I'd love to see those be more data-driven. But what if there isn't an easy, biologically sensible definition? Which is maybe um, why we don't have one. <laughs> exactly. I'll tell you, seven failed embryo transfers just doesn't even seem clinically feasible for patients. I don't, I don't know many patients that would be willing to try seven times and, and fail repeatedly. Right, but that's the argument where what's the crossing point where PGT really does become beneficial in terms of reducing the number of embryos to transfer for all of its limitations, <laughs> mosaicism, uncertain call, expense, add-on, etc. I do think you reach a point where in somebody who has favorable ovarian reserve where PGT unquestionably helps with embryo selection. And it's probably not in the younger patient. Um, I think clinically, I, I always think about that as, as age 37, but I'd be curious to see where, where this comes out on their calculator. Another great paper, another fantastic clinical conundrum that I don't think we solved today, but I like the discussion. I encourage you to log in and, and download that calculator. Eve, we're moving on to early pregnancy in an article that you're covering. Thanks so much, Micah. This next paper is titled Mean Differences in Maternal BMI and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Observational Studies. The first author is Abby Epen from the University of Iowa with the senior author Christina Boots from Northwestern. This systematic review seeks to identify if an increased BMI predisposes to recurrent pregnancy loss by comparing the mean difference in BMI among cases, those with RPL and those without. There were 25 included studies and they had close to 4,000 patients with recurrent pregnancy loss compared to just over 4,000 without RPL. Overall, they found a very small but statistically significant difference in mean BMI in the RPL group versus the comparison group, but the mean difference was 0.7 kilograms per meter squared, so not even a full point increase in BMI. The authors then did a subgroup analysis. Speaking of different definitions, when do we define RPL? So they looked at those with greater than two pregnancy losses compared to those with three or more, as the definition of RPL was not uniform in the literature they reviewed. When RPL was defined as two pregnancy losses, there was a statistically significantly higher BMI in the RPL group but the difference was small. It was 0.9 kilograms per meter squared. When RPL was defined as three pregnancy losses, the difference in mean BMI between groups was not significant. 
So what do we make of these data? We know intuitively that elevated BMI is not good for health or reproduction, but I'm really struggling, especially in light of our prior discussion, is in what way is BMI not favorable and how do we modify this? And I think as I think about this further, my take-home point from all of it is we really need to focus on primary prevention and aggressive strategy for our youth rather than retrospectively trying to solve the problem. We've talked about this on podcasts before, but I think BMI is the symptom. It's not the disease. And BMI research moving forward, I really think needs to start drilling down on the metabolic disease and not necessarily on the symptom of of kilograms per meter squared. And I think we're actually going to start to get a lot more informative data and understand a little bit about how the patient's metabolic function, its its, its homeostatic environment is, is driving a lot of this and not necessarily just the weight on the scale. Love to see biomarkers. I mean, I think there's a lot of data and we love to talk about HCG and other biomarkers, Calponin, of early pregnancy, I'd love to see the research shift away from BMI and more towards the underlying, what is the underlying pathophysiology that may be concerning? And maybe there are patients who are overweight and have an elevated BMI, but are perfectly healthy. And maybe there are patients who are thin, who are not so healthy. And if we can really drill down to what are those differences, that may ultimately help us to decide how do we counsel patients uh, in moving forward and how do we think ultimately what we want is we want to improve outcomes, live birth outcomes, healthy babies, healthy moms. And I just am not convinced that BMI as a marker is, is the right thing to look at. Great. Thank you, Eve. So moving on to our last article, we're in the infertility section of the journal now. And this is from first author Marugapan, our friend Ruben Alvero, and senior author Leonard and colleagues from Stanford. It's titled Development and Validation of a Risk Prediction Index for Severe Maternal Morbidity Based on Preconception Comorbidities Among Infertile Patients. In other words, the authors sought to develop and validate a preconceptual risk model for severe maternal morbidity is defined by the CDC and infertile women. So they had a data set of over 94,000 infertile women. They used 70,000 of them to develop their model for predicting what they defined as life-threatening complications. And then 24,000 were used to confirm their validation set. Overall, the risk of life-threatening complications was 2.3% in women, and these primarily clustered around pulmonary hypertension, hematologic disorders, renal disease, and cardiac disease diagnosed in women before their pregnancy. Overall, the ability for their risk score to predict uh, severe life-threatening disease had an area under the curve of 0.66, which might be considered a mediocre model, but I think this more highlights just how difficult it is to predict uh, these life-threatening conditions in women. But I do think that uh, they gave us a calculator similar to other things, so that essentially like two other things we've talked about today, the authors give us a tool, and this tool can help us uh, give a validated risk score to patients that tells them what their chance is of having a severe pregnancy complication if they do get pregnant. And overall, I think this is helpful in that it helps us uh, empower and inform our patients 
as to what the risks are if they do get pregnant. So another nice article with a very practical tool that we can implement into our counseling. As always, there are many other articles in the journal. These are just some of the ones that we wanted to highlight. Please check out our video articles, which now have almost 4 million views on YouTube. So look it for us on YouTube and subscribe to the Fertility and Sterility channel there. Kurt, Eve, and Pietro, any final words? If you aren't already doing it, you should be following us on Twitter at FertStart, Instagram at Fertility and Sterility, and I'm pleased to announce that Dr. Barnhart is now officially on Twitter. You can follow the editor-in-chief at Barnhart underscore Kurt on Twitter. Micah, thank you. These podcasts are always a lot of fun. I think this was a really good mix between uh, some, we learned a lot, but also had some really good discussions. So look forward to the next one. Wonderful. Can't wait to see everyone at ASRM and thank you to all of our listeners. And we will be talking to you next again in the December edition of Fertility and Sterility on air. Have a great month, everyone. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.